against my better judgment and a much funnier answer, I guess I'll go with D. Uh, but okay. the but pineapple you- citrus on the rear end sounds really <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's only one way to find out. This segment of DOD TV is brought to you by Ram Trucks. Guts, glory, Ram. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast, episode number 171. Yeah! <laughs> it's titled, The Plot Thickens. You're Tim Chelswick. I'm Matt Drury. Heck yeah. As hard as they try to get rid of us, we keep coming back. Of, of all the people, like the outdoor personalities in the entire world, we are two of them. I don't know why or how. <laughs> the bar is pretty low. I, I was going to say, I mean, <laughs> just about anybody could call themselves an outdoor personality. And they do. So <laughs> I think we're not winning. And, and we do. Winning any credit there. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we're here. Yeah, so, we're talking food plots today. That's right. We got a really cool guest. But before we get into that, we got some business to take we care of. We do have some business. So uh, we got shout outs. Heck yeah. Yep. Soundboard's still here. <laughs> we love counting. Mark <laughs> and Terry haven't taken it away yet. <laughs> we yeah. We love it when you guys give us feedback on whatever pla- uh, podcast platform you're listening on, or even on YouTube. You can just leave comments in there. So uh so our first shout-out comes from Chase and Deers. It's the guy's name, Chase and Deers. And drinking and, beers. <laughs> he titled it Killing It. It says, just love you guys and all the great tips you give. Thumbs up. Look at this guy. Thanks, man. I don't know what sound effect this is, but he's going to get it. <laughs> okay. Now I know what it is. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that one, Jason. You suck, Matt. <laughs> How about you take the next one, Matt? All right. Next one's from uh, Minnesota Bo Tile Quit. And it just says, just stop. So <laughs> I didn't read this show notes ahead of time. So Tim gave me the one that's probably most applicable to himself. Yeah. So we're going to sit here in silence for the next 40 minutes or so. So this one does deserve the sound. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say we disagree with you, Minnesota Bo. So Minnesota Bo thinks we suck. Join well, the club, yeah. fella. <laughs> Get uh, in the line. So if you want to leave us feedback, just go to whatever platform you're listening on and rate us. And Yeah, give apparently us good or bad bad we read it so <laughs> if it's pg we'll put it on air we are dedicated to the truth that's right <clears throat> unlike most of the media in america today fake news <laughs> all right so what's next let's feature some dirt all right so this is something that we uh started with toxie and chris holly oh a few podcasts back i think we did one with terry on the 248 we did one maybe last podcast the one Wade was on, I think. Yep. And this is our third one. So the Mossy Oak properties featured dirt. When you step off the beaten path on this Montgomery County, Kansas farm, there's something that feels magical. Steep ridges run from the north and stop on the property, creating lookouts over the Elk River bottom. Mm. These ridges are a part of a bigger network of terrain and timber known as the Sycamore Valley. These giant blocks of privately owned land create the scenario that big buck hunters are looking for. Extensive long-term management of the deer herd has been conducted on this property as well as the neighboring land. Weighing in at 143 acres this farm fights like a heavyweight champ they weighed the farm ah want more info check out the link in the show notes below our google moss yoke properties 49818 lastly but not least you can call the agent matt wanzer at 620-330-7289 nope that's wrong (laughs) 7282 
620-330-7282. That information will also be on the show notes. <laughs> Rewind. Start over. If you call the, if you call the other number, uh, let us know what happens. I, you know, <clears throat> I know that's a long uh, read there, but these properties are pretty awesome. They kind of hand select them because they're uh, properties they feel like might relate to our audience. And it's not like they're, you know, hey, 148, 143 acres is a great piece of land. But I think it's, we're trying to pick pieces that aren't going to totally be out of the price range of the majority of the people out there. So right. anything from 40 to a couple hundred acres, that's what we're trying to target here. And they've done a good job of picking these out for us. So uh, definitely check them out. Mossy yeah. Properties. Heck yeah. All right. So let's thicken the plot, shall we? Let's do it. The food plot, that is. Do you see what I did? No. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking food plot. I should have done the cricket sound effect. Cricket or fart. Either All one right. I was kind of expecting. <laughs> We've got Austin Delano. He is Mossy Oak Biologics food plot guru. This is the guy that actually comes up with the seed blends and decides what, what they're doing. And I didn't know that. I knew this. He is the guy that oh, helps dude. us every time we have a problem or a question or anything. <laughs> it was always, we always used to, it used to be, Bobby Cole. We mm -hmm. call them Bobby Logic. But oh, yeah. he's a famous uh, author now. He's too good for the podcast. Us. He's just too good for us in general. So Austin's been happy to step in and take take his uh, spot. <laughs> Isn't that right, Austin? That's right. That's right. I'm kind of waiting on for y'all to maybe read a few more mean tweets. Uh, mm. That's Highly entertaining. We got them. We got them. So <laughs> people don't hold anything back. <laughs> yeah, it could it could get real ugly if we wanted it to. <laughs> uh -huh. so. Right. Well, so this is a busy time of year for you. Obviously, down there in uh, West Point, you guys are probably shipping more seed right now than you do any other time of year, or, or at least if if the buyer is a procrastinator like like me and Tim, they're probably just putting their order in and saying, man, man, can you ship it? I need it yesterday. Are you getting a lot of that right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. It's crazy. <laughs> really the last three months have been crazy. Um, I guess you could attribute it to people having more time to get out there and do stuff, you know, with them being yeah. off work or with a more relaxed schedule somewhat. Um, but seed sales have been good. And uh, yeah, it's a crazy time of year because we're, we're kind of right there in the middle right now where, you know, guys in the north have already planted. Guys in the Midwest are kind of in the middle of it. Yeah. And then guys in the south are gearing up for it. So yeah, yeah right now is uh it's a really crazy time of year. It's it's our it's our time of year where we gotta make hay though. So this is uh, it's supposed to be busy. Yeah. So <clears throat> just to start off, what would be one of the most common questions you guys get down there? And what is the answer to that question before we jump into this thing? Yeah, man, there, there's a few of them that we really get hammered on just, you know, almost on a daily basis. Um, if I just had to pick one, it's probably going to be, you know, what can I plant for my deer at a particular time of the season? You know, sometimes that question is early, sometimes yeah. it's late, but that's probably one of the most asked questions is what can I plant for my deer for the early season or full season growth? And, uh, I usually answer that with, Hey, let me give some details from you because to give you the correct answer, I need to know where you live, you know, what type of uh, critter you're hunting, you know, are you talking about deer or are we talking about just Turkey or everything? Um, and then also, you know, what time of year are you hunting that particular piece of property? Is it something you say for the late season or is it a place that's just really good early and that's the only time you're really going to key in on it. 
or is it a box blind you're going to be sitting in for all three months of the season? Yeah. So I usually try to get some details from guys before I just give them a vague answer. Um, but y'all know as well as anybody, there's things that seem to work really good early. There's things that seem to work really good late. Mm-hmm. So I'm really going to try to get those guys keyed in on when do you plan to spend the most time in that particular set it's uh, right. to help them plant what I think is going to help them the most. It's funny. That's the most asked question because that was going to be my question for you, for me personally. <laughs> that's, I, so we'll, we'll keep moving on here. There's but, also a show happening, but let's get your answers out of the way. <laughs> well, I was going to say, so I do have a question. So um, we have a, a food plot called the staging plot and <clears throat> it's, I don't know, maybe an acre. And uh, it currently is in radishes. The last few years we planted in radishes. I think three years ago, I planted it in winter bulbs and sugar beets and they just did not touch it until like February. I mean, it was really late until they, you know, it was too late, frankly. And so uh, mm-hmm. Mark, you know, and Terry are like, oh no, you got to start planting radishes. So we started doing that a couple of years ago. And once we did that, it's been amazing. You know, the amount of early season activity we get in this food plot. Well, <clears throat> this year, my farmer is, um, his rotation of crops, he decided not to plant corn or beans. And that's a real big part of my strategy. It's right behind my uh, blind. And so that staging plot, they feed out into it from the timber, from the bedding, and they work their way into these big ag fields. Well, this year it's in, you know, I forget what he, millet or or Milo or something like that. It's and. I'm a little concerned about what it's going to do to our late season strategy. And so I was thinking, Mm -hmm. okay, I still, you know, Mark keeps saying, Oh, you just got to kill them early. Okay, great. Let (laughs) me write that down. I'm not that good. So let's just, let's just pretend like I'm not going to kill one early (laughs) and I'll be hunting there in December. (laughs) Hypothetically, Mark. (laughs) So if that was the case, I still want to have the early season success and, and uh, palatability with the radishes. So, I had asked Mark this. I was like, would you mix in something with the radishes? Or he's like, well, final forage is kind of that, you know, might, might be that, uh, a seed blend that you want. But he goes, I, I would, and I'd go with radishes and I just kill them early. Just kept sticking with that. So I thought I'm going to keep asking people till I hear what I want to hear. <laughs> well, so here we go. So here we go. What would you do in this scenario? Just knowing that my late season strategy of either having the ability to buy an acre of corn or an acre of beans from the farmer isn't there for the late season and and knowing that radishes for me, I just have not had great success after about gun season in Missouri um, with with radishes. I mean, early on, they just Mm -hmm. hammer them. But once gun season, right right around that time, mid-November, late November, they they just, you know, it's it's not something they hit anymore. So what would you Mm -hmm. do in that scenario? Would you you mix something in or would you think about planting the food plot in halves, half radishes and half, you know, something else, final forage or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, splitting the plot up rather than mixing something else in and potentially not getting the ratios just right and, yeah. and one thing not growing as well as it could because we've got a little bit too much competition in that particular spot. So if I was in the situation you're in, I think I would try to potentially make the plot bigger if that's a possibility. We did that. And yep. just go, with, <clears throat> go in there and let's say, okay, we're going to have a bow set up primarily for early and mid-season right here with radishes. We know that's going to work. And if the deer doesn't act right, we don't get something killed. You know, maybe we've got an acre of uh, final forage or maximum 
over here on the backside that we can set up for, you know, with some later season wins. Notes. Final that form. might be a, a, an option you can go with there just because, you know, like you said, the further north you go with the radishes, uh, they're unbelievable early in midseason. <clears throat> now, possibly the only downside to radishes is they're not quite as cold tolerant as, say, a lot of our rape and turnips that we use like in uh, maximum or winter bulbs and sugar beets. But it's also the reason why they're so good early is because they're not as cold tolerant. So usually the more the earlier the maturity rate is on these brassica family plants, the earlier they like it in the year. Mm. So something that's got a longer maturity rate, like the green globe turnip we use, they don't really like it early on in the season. And that's the way we want it. We really don't want them eating it in October, November. Yeah. We want it there in November. We want it there in December, January when yeah. they're really hungry. So we really key in on the rashes like you're talking about for that early season because the cold weather sometimes when they get some real heavy snows, depending on how long they had to grow and develop that big tuber in the ground, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes that uh, that forage is just wiped clean to the dirt by the time the yeah. rut gets there. <clears throat> yeah. And there's not a lot going on in that radish plot. And that's what we see a lot is just they, they hit it so hard, there's not a lot there. So I would rely on something that's a little bit more geared towards cold season, snowy, you know, hard freeze type weather. And that's going to be the maximum of the winter bulbs and the sugar beets. Which is final forage? You know, final forage is kind of a, a marrying of the two. So with final forage, we took the radish, we took the green globe turnip, which are kind of polar opposites of each other in that most all deer will eat the radishes very early. Even even deer that have never seen brassica family plants before, like you were talking about your deer not really keying in on those winter bulbs and sugar beets that first year until like February. Yeah, That can be fairly typical of deer that A, have a lot of choices or resources to go to other than that field, mm-hmm. or B, they're just not really used to brassica family plants and they haven't really acclimated to that being a major food source yet. So the radishes are almost a, I don't want to say a guarantee, but they're probably the closest thing to a guarantee where if I if I really want the forage output that Braska family plants give me, mm-hmm. and my deer have never seen that before, I'm going to start them off with radishes. Yeah. Because there just doesn't seem to be a very steep learning curve with it like there seems to be with some of the other Braska family plants. Now, everybody's deer are different. You can plant that some places and they don't eat it for three years. And then all of a sudden they act like it's the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. And then other places you plant it the first time and they wipe it out in October. So not everybody's deer is the same. And obviously everybody's weather is different from Florida to Canada where we sell this stuff. So, um, but kind of in general, those radishes work really good late. I mean, early the winter bulbs and sugar beet type varieties like our green globe turnip work really good late. So the final forage blend, is is three things it's the radishes we've kind of got a mid-season uh rape in there and then we've got the late season turnip so if your deer are used to brassicas it's kind of the perfect combination of of three different maturity rates an early a mid and a late Mm. and so it's and it's also a coated seed so it's going to germinate a little quicker it's going to come out of the ground really fast um and we have we've really moved a lot of it this year it's really grown in popularity the last two seasons that's what I need to know. 
it's we're planning tomorrow, by the way. That's why I'm asking all these questions. So if, if you're not watching the show on DeerCast or YouTube, you're missing out on watching Matt literally taking notes on everything Austin is this saying is, right This now. is reminiscent of my school years where I it's the that. day before the test. And I'm oh, yeah. just now trying to figure out what the you hell I'm doing. stuff out. <laughs> so I, I can't read. <laughs> I am. I am exceptionally interested right now in this topic because you and I have not talked about this yet. My buddy, Tony Cantrell, TC property and landscaping services just bought a bunch of food plotting equipment. And for the first time I will have food on my hunting property. It makes a difference because I'm like, I I think a lot of guys that are hunting on handshake deals, wherever they can get access, they don't own the property. They're not leasing the property. And so they have limited access. Things are changing a little bit this year on my property. So my buddy's got all this equipment now. He's we, we mowed last weekend. We're gonna do some spraying and 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 burn off all the weeds and stuff. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna have radishes early yeah. season. I am so excited. Yeah, uh, it's gonna be a, a total game changer. So I'm super interested. In, it should in, be because all of a sudden they're going to one. They're actually you got a place where they're gonna, gonna use them to suck them in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because yeah. they're eating acorns and and uh, and natural browse. And Austin, I was listening to the the cousins. Pot- podcast fistful of dirt and he had you on um and it was i thought it was so this is how dumb i am i thought it was getting really spiritual because you guys both kept talking about soul and it's like wow they're talking about the soul this is then i realized you guys are talking about soil yeah. <laughs> well, they are from the you, south. You, you didn't. It took you. It took you a while to tune into my <laughs> Alabama accent. Took me, took me a little bit, or or my accent. Um, and 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 you said something very interesting about because I think this could probably apply to a lot of guys fertilizing, and I don't know if you call them noxious weeds, but like ragweed, milkweed, stuff like that. Just fertilizing the ground can sweeten up native plants that are already there. And that still has an impact on on the deer, essentially drawing the deer in by fertilizing native browse. Yeah, you know, it's a kind of an overlooked um, tactic to use. Um, you know, I made a post the other day on Instagram on my personal page about a piece of timber that I'm helping a friend of mine manage. And um, he's, a, he's already got the food plots. He's got plenty of them. Um, so food is not a big issue, uh, but cover is trying to create some more bedding and escape cover for these deer. And, you know, in this particular area, one of the best ways to do that is to get rid of timber because it's 95% timber and 5% openings versus something y'all might be used to seeing, which is maybe the polar opposite, you know, 5% timber and 95% openings. So we just don't have, there's no CRP in this particular area. There's no um, really nice bedding to speak of. It's you've got pine plantations, you've got food plots and you've got mature timber. And so there's not a huge diversity there for staging for deer to come in and and bed down in areas that are not a pine thicket. Mm -hmm. So we created some of those by clear cutting low quality timber and, you know, letting all those shoots and suckers come back up from the roots, whether it be oak, hickory, all these different types of hardwoods that are going to try to come back from their stumps, which for a year or so are really good food. Um, but you know, they very quickly go back into six and eight foot trees. And then, you know, within two or three growing seasons, you've got a forest again, that's starting, that turns into bulldozer work. So we essentially just went in there and used herbicides, uh, you know, selective herbicides to keep 
the woody growth from taking over and fertilize the native grasses and the native weeds to take over and essentially create a, uh, a sweetened up bedding zone that has plants in it that deer are going to eat. Um, but they're also going to want to bed up right there and, you know, fertilizing that was really easy. I mean, it was, you know, we took a lime buggy through there, limed the area, neutralized that acidity a little bit so that our fertilizer would work better for mm-hmm. us. And then went through there with, you know, just a, a real basic, uh, balanced number fertilizer, uh, just to sweeten that area up. You can do that on field edges. A lot of people have noticed that the areas they plant food plots in, the deer tend to browse on the edge of those food plots as well, because a lot of times there's things on the edge that, that they do like. And all of a sudden over a couple of years time, a lot of that fertilizer is working its way through that native browse that's, you know, hanging over the edge of your food plots. And, and that's why some of that, just some of the native plants taste better when they've got, you know, some higher nutrient content to them. To me, it it gives guys that maybe don't have food plots or can't put them in a little hope that they can do some things to sweeten the property, to keep the deer on their area. I know Dr. Grant Woods made a post in DeerCast last week. He actually did a nutritional analysis of ragweed and a couple other native uh, plant species and found like they're pretty high in crude protein and fats and things that you just wouldn't think are very nutritious. Like this is the general species of, of, we call weeds mostly, but these noxious plants, they actually have quite a bit of nutrition in them and the deer go to them. I think Queen Anne's lace was another one yeah. that, that he said had quite a bit of nutrient value and that we overlook, but the deer, because they live in that area, they know those things and they, 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 they go to them. Yeah. you know, um, old field management, you know, some people might call it or fallow field management of these areas. Is, is really fairly simple. Um, and everybody's got different weeds. That's what's cool. You know, um, you know how it is when you're turning a food plot over, uh, with a disc or with a tiller, if you, if you don't plant it, you get a pretty quick flush of weeds that's going to come up mm, yeah. and you can get a different flush of weeds, obviously, depending on what time of year you turn that soil over. So, you know, if you turn it over in the fall, you might have a totally different crop of weeds come back before the hard frost set in and on through the winter versus what, what you're going to get if you turned that dirt over in the spring and the summer when the soil temperature is a little warmer. Sure. So all those things kind of play into effect, but, um, yeah, it's really easy to improve areas with, uh, with fertilizer by increase, increasing the nutrient content and increasing the taste, the palatability of those plants just through sweetening them up a little bit. So you, you mentioned the discing or tilling. So tomorrow, you know, we were going to till, we've been spraying our, you know, our food plots and, and preparing it in that regard, killing off the, the grasses and weeds. And so we're going to till and plant. If you till and plant, do you recommend cultipacking it in some way, shape or form? Like, you know, whether it's putting a pallet behind a side by side and putting some weight on mm-hmm. it or, you know, what, what do you recommend in that regard once you do uh, to help kind of prepare that seed bed, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cultipacking is, is kind of highly overlooked a lot of times because, you know, we all get real jacked up about <clears throat> getting the, getting the ground tore up, getting the disc or tilled and then getting seed on it really quick. But <clears throat> especially with these smaller seeds, whether it be maximum or, uh, or one of the clover blends, <clears throat> excuse me, like a non-typical clover, you know, a lot of these fall seeds are, they're really small. And so they have a tendency to get buried too deeply. If somebody tries to go in there and 
and kind of cover them old school with a disc, like they used to cover up oats or something that, yeah, they can stand to be buried two inches. But if you, if you bury your brassicas or your, your clovers that deep, you're not going to get hardly any germination. So cultipacking helps out on, on several levels. If I'm going to plant one of these smaller seeded blends, ideally after I get done disking or tilling, whatever I use to cultivate the field, uh, after I get done, I'm going to use that cultipacker to firm that seed bed back up and kind of press out the airspace so that uh, I've got a, a lot more even distribution of seed because I don't have a lot of areas where I've got, you know, for instance, your footprint goes down six inches and the area above it is just a big fluffy, you know, yeah. root zone. I, I want it more uniform. So I get uniform germination. So I take that cult packer and go over it after I get my ground worked up, broadcast my seed, and then ideally cult pack it in or lightly drag it in. Um, you know, if you don't have a cult packer using your tractor tires and like you said, a pallet, a piece of fence, Anything where you're going back over the food plot, pressing out all that airspace and kind of just giving a a lot more even uh, seed bed for that seed to land on so that it's not a big fluffy airfield seed bed where seeds can, you know, let's say you get a two or three inch rain and that seed gets pulled down really far Mm. and it just can't germinate. So uh, the other thing cultipacking really helps out with is helping that moisture move through the soil profile more correctly Um, because let's say you go out there and disc something six, eight, 10 inches deep with a really good piece of equipment. There's a lot of airspace in that. And when a rain hits it, it doesn't move evenly through that soil because there's some areas that are a lot more dense with old root systems and stuff than others. And so your germination is going to be very spotty a lot of times where you've got a lot of airspace in the, in the soil that hasn't been firmed back up. And it also dries out really quick. You know, a lot of people, uh, the South in particular, you know, our key time for planting fall food plots is also usually our two driest months of the year, September and October. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't really lend itself to good food plots if you don't take some steps to help yourself out, such as cultipacking. So if you've got good moisture in the ground and you go in there and work it up, broad cultipack it and broadcast your seed, and cultipack it again, that first rain you get is going to move through that soil a lot more evenly like it did before you worked it up versus if you just rip it up with a tiller or a disc, broadcast your seed and just leave it. A lot of times you come back and you're like, oh, it looks really good over here where my tractor tires went back over it. And then you got some spots over here that were untouched and it's just like one or two plants growing. So so you would till it, then cultipack it, then put your seeds out and then cult pack it again. Ideally. That's the way I like to do it. Okay. Yeah. That I, I know that's know. throwing that's an extra step in there, but it helps. Okay. Yeah. And Austin, if you don't have to say soil for our benefit, <laughs> if you want to say soul, I'm, I'm jealous of anyone that has a Southern <laughs> accent. I wish I had a Southern accent. Do you want me to punch him? <laughs> I'm used to it, man. I know I've got a terrible podcast. accent. I can't help it. Tim and Matt actually fight <laughs> on the show. Be the cold open. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing haymakers. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things you and Cuz were talking about, you know, Cuz is all about getting his grandkids on to, on to deer. And he's, you know, he wants, a, he wants a lot of deer. He wants them to have an exciting time. What about... 
What about and, and I'm thinking about taking my daughter out this year, getting her and getting her in the blind with the crossbow. Are there any special considerations for planting around a blind where you know maybe you're taking out someone who's not a hunter later in the season and they're going to sit in a blind? Like, how would you plant around that? Yeah, that's definitely something to think about. And obviously, like the property you were talking about that you're going to participate on this year, you don't have time to do it this year. But going down the road, if you already have an area picked out, let's say for a ground blind or, you know, just a short five to 10 foot blind that you're going to try to get kids in where it's about having a target rich environment versus, hey, we're trying to kill a booner in here. Um, I I like to try to to do things in those type of situations where obviously I'm going to improve my my odds by maybe planting some cover right around my blind just to disguise it a little bit, giving myself a little bit more margin of error on kids ratting around in the blind and making (laughs) racket and doing what kids do. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that blind spot blend we've got, it's a, you know, it's an extremely tall growing um, forage sorghum variety. Mm -hmm. And so if you get that stuff planted, um, you know, let's just say, take for instance, in the, in the Midwest sometime in like mid June, you know, by, by the time October rolls around, it's going to be 10, 12 foot tall and it's going to provide, you know, a really good screen mm-hmm. for moving in and out of a, a food plot, you know, where maybe you've got a, an opportunity to, to pull a buggy up there pretty close. You know, if you've got somebody elderly that can't walk very far, you've Mark. got kids that, you know, if they walk a half mile, they <laughs> act like they're going to die. I mean, there's all kinds of situations, but it, it allows you to kind of disguise and your entrance and your exit, not just coming to the stand, but you know, Hey, we all want to leave the field sometimes. And there's 73 deer out there and they all hear you get out and, you know, see you walk across the field. And that in my mind, sometimes I think that may educate them way more than them seeing a doe get dropped in the field with a rifle. Sure. Um, You know, the entrance and the exit to a stand is, is critical. I mean, Mark, Terry, Matt, you guys have been, you know, y'all been waving that flag for a long time. Hey, you know, you got to pay attention to your entrance and your exit. So using something like that to also plant around the blind area, Mm -hmm. I think really helps to help you have some natural concealment. So it's not just a, you know, a square blind sticking out on the edge of a field that uh, it's already a little bit foreign to them, but they put up with it because they've got food. So if you've got some really good natural cover growing around it, or you, you grow the cover and then you put the blind in and brush it in. Mm-hmm. I think it gives you some, some extra um, concealment, you know, for areas where you're going to be in there with say non-experienced hunters or, 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 or people me. that just haven't spent a lot of time uh, trying to be quiet and be still for deer. Yeah. Heck yeah. I think it makes sense. The name that, makes so much sense. <clears throat> blind spot. Another thing you might kind of think about is how close you plant your food to your blind. So, you know, 10 yards out or, you know, you don't want them eating right up against the thing. So, <laughs> right. I can pet them on yeah. the head. You know, you want to think through that as well. Yeah. It's a little side note, Tim. No, thanks for the, t- I'm going to write it down. I'm waiting. It's Matt, right? Matt. Yes. Okay. Two T's. Matt says. Okay. <laughs> I made this, I made this mistake myself years ago when I first introduced my wife to bow hunting. So I had this area on the edge of a food plot picked out with white oak acorns dropping. And I thought, this is a slam dunk, you know, with a good wind, we're going to see deer. And of course I hear the deer coming in behind us, moving through chomping acorns coming to the food plot. What I wasn't thinking about was how close the shot might be versus how yeah. far it might be. Yeah. That can be just and, you as know, far the as deer, a far shot. You know, this big jug head doe walks in there and she's at 
four yards Ugh. basically, you know, and I hadn't trained my wife how to shoot a deer at five yards. I had been more concerned about her shooting one at 25 yeah. Yeah. and, and how to, and how to hold a pin on a deer that's, you know, where you you're right on top of them versus you're not having to worry about that angle so bad. And, you know, she hit the deer a little high and, and it was because she held the pin exactly where she should. But sure. when they're at five yards, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. yeah. And, it's like 30 you know, I, I got to thinking about that when you said that, because if you've got food planted right up to your stand, if you're shooting with a, you know, a compound bow, it can create problems. Well, and if you're, you know, say she's shooting a crossbow, you know, which a lot of youth or, you know, people you're Yikes. introducing into the sport like that's just as big of a problem. If it, they're right underneath you with a crossbow, mm -hmm. it's that's impossible to take a shot. Yeah. So I don't know if your blind is going to be on the ground or elevated well, or I'm not going to tell you. Well, <laughs> then so screw you. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm done helping you. <laughs> that's it. Let's help somebody else. <laughs> How about keeping your small food plots from getting tore up before you can actually come in and hunt them? How do you keep deer out of them? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a problem that a lot of people have, even with a moderate deer density. You know, the small quarter acre food plots that are kind of tucked away somewhere, they can just get smoked. I mean, if you get six, eight, ten deer night eating in them, they can knock a dent in a really well thought out and planned food plot yeah. really quick. Um, there's several options. Probably the least expensive one that that seems to work is um, you know, for years we've made this tape and this liquid called plot protector. Um, it's a, it's just a real simple piece of one inch poly tape and it comes with a little small jug of, um, it's not a chemical. It's just, it's called putrescent egg solids. It's oh, been around forever. That sounds it was, terrible. It's been in the garden. Yeah. It's, it sounds really bad. Uh, it's been in the garden industry for years. Uh, but it's just something that smells really bad to deer and they don't really want to feed right up next to it. It doesn't yeah. completely blow them out of the area or anything, but the combination of that white tape and the smell, sometimes it's just enough to keep 75, 80, 90% of your deer from jumping in there and just smoking the food plot when you really need that food to last, say, into November. Um, just a quick example, I had a really cool lease in Tennessee years ago, had some really nice bucks on it, but they don't start acting right until – December really on that place last week in November, first week mm -hmm. in December. And so to have food on small food plots on a lease, we had to protect them. Yep. Otherwise, you know, there was, there's 53 slick kids out there every night, just mowing it down to a putting green. And so we double taped the small food plots off with that plot protector. And I would have cameras set up kind of wide angle time-lapse style to see where the deer are coming and going, how they're okay. reacting to the fence. And it doesn't keep every deer out. It seems to keep a lot more of the mature deer out than it does any of the other ones. Some of the really, you know, young, dumber deer are just going to walk right under and just go start feeding. But, you know, your older deer, they're a little bit more wary. They've had more experiences. They know something's just not quite right. And they would walk up to it, look around and say, I think I'll go somewhere else. So it's an option to keep them out of those smaller food plots so they don't get over browsed and that you have some food left by the time you really want to hunt the plot. Um, some people do the electric fence route, which is, you know, a lot more expensive and it does sure. take some time, but there's options out there. If that's your, if that's what you have to do. 
What about a scarecrow that looks like Mark Drury? It'd scare me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, did, they, they obviously going to recognize he's a killer. <laughs> I don't see any deer anymore. <laughs> All right. So did we utilize Austin enough yet <laughs> with our own personal questions? What are you doing next weekend? What are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> Can you make the drive up to, uh, to North St. Louis here and help me Come plan help a few f- food plots? Uh, is there anything else kind of big on your on your agenda or, or th- that you just feel like people ought to know regarding food plots at this time of year? You know, something we've really dealt a lot with more lately because I think we've we've done a little better job marketing and, and making it available for for our customers. But but it's always been there is our soil testing service. Mm. Um, it's really a highly overlooked part of growing crops. Um, and it does take a little, just a little bit of extra time and effort to do it. <laughs> there you go. That's we, what I'm talking we about. We got one. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a really valuable piece of paper that cost you $9. Uh, but you know, it, it, it takes out, it takes out a ton of guesswork on knowing what the dirt in the area that you're fixing to plant does or doesn't need. How, how does so, a person go about getting that test done? The easiest way is just to go to plantbiologic.com. There's a tab over there that says soil test. Click on it. You buy it, put it in your cart, and all the directions are there. Okay. You don't have to have a kit. It's as simple as taking a heavy-duty Ziploc bag, you know, a sandwich-sized Ziploc bag, you know, knocking the top of the dirt off, get the plant material off the top, and and putting a good double handful of, of soil in there and, and sending it off to the lab there in Memphis. And letting them analyze what's going on in that particular place that you're fixing to plant. You know, a lot of people will do the, well, uh, they used to farm this ground. It, it should be fine. Or they grew crops here for years or the, the complete opposite. Nothing's ever grown here before it, it. It should be good, but you just don't know. Yeah. There's no way of knowing by looking at a piece of dirt, how fertile or not fertile it is. So that soil test is going to tell us a current pH level you know, the current level on the acidity of the soil is going to give us our phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, and calcium levels. And so by looking at those and looking at the pH, and also you're going to have an option over there of checking what you're planning to plant. Mm -hmm. So when that soil test comes back, it's going to give you what your current status is, as well as the recommendations for the crop that you say you're fixing to plant. You know, so if you were going to plant non-typical clover, your pH level recommendations might come back a little higher because, you know, clover or alfalfa, they really prefer a really, you know, in that six and a half to seven range is where they really want to grow their best at Mm. versus if you're saying I'm just growing wheat, well, you don't have to have a, an almost neutral pH to grow a really good crop of wheat. It'll grow with, you know, down there in the low five. So the P, you know, the, the line recommendation is not going to be quite as high for um, a cool season annual as it is a perennial. Okay. Yeah. For instance, on, on that staging plot I was talking about was we, Scott had done a soil test. And so we, we checked that we were wanting to plant radishes. They recommend a desired pH of six, five and our actual soil pH was six, two. So we're not too far off, yeah. but it tells you how much, yeah, that's, you know, yeah, you're starting off really good right there. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and you know, there's a lot of detail here, and it goes into exactly products available in our area, and and all kinds of different things that it goes into. So, 
Yeah, it's pretty handy. And uh, when we start, I think last year was the first time we actually did that. And, you know, it did make a big difference. The way our food plot looked last year was the best it's ever looked, frankly. So you you might think you can do the guy's way and just go do it yourself. And I'll just put (laughs) fertilizer and it did make a huge difference for us last year. Austin, do you you suggest? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, as you said earlier, that I, uh, probably top three most asked questions is going to be what fertilizer do I need for this yeah. particular crop? Well, give me a soil test to look at first. Otherwise, I'm just kind of giving you some vague recommendations yeah. you know, of what that family of plants likes to have. But your dirt might be totally different. You might have really high phosphorus and potassium levels, and you really don't need to add a whole lot except nitrogen. You know, or your pH level is 5.2, and I really wouldn't spend the first dollar on fertilizer that year. I'd spend all my time and effort into getting it limed mm. so that that lime can start working on the acidity of that dirt so that the, the nutrients I have in the soil already become more available, and then any that I add in the future are going to be a lot more available for that plant. So, you know, a lot of guys will get a soil test back, and it'll say 5.2, but they don't go through the steps to get any lime added. Well, at that low of a pH, your your fertilizer that you add, at least 70% of it at that level is is completely unusable by the plants. Mm. So in a lot of cases, that's chunking a couple hundred dollar bills out the window on the way to the farm. Uh, so I'm going to spend my time and energy into getting it limed first because without it, the current nutrients in the soil and anything I add to it are just not near as available to the plants and the root system uh, until we get that pH up into that 6.2 to 7 range where most food plot crops are going to thrive. Okay. I imagine that you'd probably want, like, if, if you're putting in plots, maybe the same property, but different areas, would you want to get soil tests done on each particular plot? Yeah. You know, that's, that's something we get asked a lot, you know, Hey, I've got a five acre food plot job. Just go to the middle of it, take one, or, you know, how do you go about doing that? And, you know, if, if you don't mind spending $9 per sample and you've got a five acre field, I'm probably going to take three samples. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to take one, uh, a third, two thirds and all the way towards the end and, and mark them off. Hey, North end, middle of the field, South end. And so, when you look at that, it may come back and they all be within spitting distance of each other, or you might see a major change in one side of the field and the other, um, mm-hmm. you know, and not to get too detailed, but if you, if you look at row crop farmers and what they do to, to get their best yield, you know, they'll go out and grid sample a 200 acre field, you know, and they'll have a ton of tests across that field because they might see that one end of the field is really high in potassium and the other end of the field is super low. Huh. So when they start adding their fertilizer, they're not going to throw a, a bunch of potash down on the side of the field that, that doesn't need it. Sure. You know, they're going to put their money where it needs to be versus where it's already got what it needs. So yeah, if it's a large field, uh, split it up, take a few samples. If it's a quarter acre field, one, one sample is going to be plenty. And you know, if there's 300, 400 yards in between plots, uh, it doesn't hurt to go ahead and take a sample off of that the, another plot, mm-hmm. particularly if there's a ridge in between it, because soil types can change very quickly within yeah. a very short distance of each other. Yeah, you know, this is obviously an area where I'm doing a lot of learning, and I can see why people get so deeply into it because it's so fascinating and just fun. Like it, 
there's so much to learn, but there's also so much impact on the condition of your deer season. Well, there's a lot, I was going to say, there's a lot at stake because when it doesn't go well, then all of a sudden you're wanting to learn how you messed it up because you know, it makes a huge difference. One year we didn't end up, I had never used a seed coat before. This is good dating back probably three years now, three seasons ago. And, uh, I remember, I'll never forget it because Mark and Terry are like, ah, oh, you ought to seed coat that. And I'm like, I always get rain. <laughs> I, got, I always get rain on, you know, in August here. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm right by the river. I'm not worried about it. Sure shit. I didn't get any rain. <laughs> and Oops. It, it looked like desert. <laughs> I mean, it was. They were dust. probably real cool with you though afterwards. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I remember like it showing up on uh, 13 and they were making fun of it and they were <laughs> talking about what not to do, like those kind of things. Snake bit mat. So I got a gigantic five gallon bucket of seed coat <laughs> that next year. And I still, I, like I always say like, <laughs> all right, lesson. we got to seed coat it. We got to seed coat <laughs> it. And it's rained so much this year and we're late. It just, I, I don't have any equipment. And so I have to hire um, a friend of ours that, that has a small tractor and sure. some implements. And uh, he's, he lives out of state now he moved. And so he's coming back in town and, and we had a short date range to to, to narrow in on. And I knew, I knew this was going to happen where it's rained so much and we've waited so long, but I was just kind of stuck with this date sure. that it, the future forecast looks abysmal. I mean, it's like horrible. And so, you know, yeah, there's nothing you can it, do about it. it I'm going to seed coat it and hope like heck that we get lucky with a few spot rains. And if not, we we've already talked about it, trying to go in and water, you know, we got, you know, a little thing we could put on the back of can am or uh-huh. whatever, and go in and try to water it. If in 10, 15 days, we don't probably 10 days, we don't see any rain at all. I'll try to go do, you know, help it as much as we can, Yeah, yeah. which sucks, but it is what it is. You got to, I mean, when you don't have the food, it's just a huge difference, especially what we're trying to do and filming and, and getting them into one certain area. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is what everybody's trying to do. I get it, but it's a lot of pressure and food, food plots are key. And really, I mean, dating back 15 years, that's where we kind of got our start with television. It is where we got our start with television. Toxi and Mossy Oak came over and said, Hey, we got this new product, Mossy Oak Biologic, mm-hmm. and we want a TV show and we want you guys to help educate people on how to, you know, make food plots. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's what we did. We had the biologic challenge in the middle of wildlife obsession. If anybody remember biologic injuries, wildlife obsession, it started in 2003. And I mean, Dr. Grant Woods was involved back then and and Bobby Cole years after that. And it was just, it was something that I think really changed Mark and Terry's perspective on food plotting and, and yeah, food, paradigm plot, shift. food plot architecture. And we get a lot of crap about it now from the audience who hate seeing box by hunts over food plots. Yeah. But our success has gone through the roof doing it that way and planting to have them come to you instead of you crash into mm-hmm. the timber and try to, you know, not get winded and your access in and all that stuff. We still hunt like that in the rut, but when it's not as, it's a little easier to get away with some of that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, early season, you know, late season, especially late season, like those, they've had a lot of success with food plot architecture and, and doing exactly what Austin and the guys down there at Biologic kind of showed us the way, way back when. And, and Here there's kind of, yeah, no turning back for us. So uh, I think if you gave it a shot, no matter how large or small, you'd see, you know, 
that it does make a huge difference in, in getting your deer to kind of congregate into one specific spot that you're that you're sitting in. So stay tuned, everybody. Well, see how bad my season doesn't suck this year. Well, one can only hope, right? <laughs> right. Can't, Can't get, it get worse. it worse than last year. <laughs> so. uh, well, how about we help out our buddy Parker from Wisconsin? All right. So the question of the day is probably brought to you by RTP Outdoors, home of the groundbreaking, groundbreaker, three-in-one food plot implement. It's good timing on that. RTP Hi, DOD piece. clan. My name is Parker from Southwest Wisconsin. My question is, do you guys use lights when entering or leaving your stands in the dark? And do you have any fear of those lights alerting or spooking deer in the area as an, some sort of an additional beacon? Thanks and good luck this season. Thank you, Parker. And great question. Yeah, let's hear. I got my thoughts, but I want to hear Austin's first. Okay. Um, I do not, um, but I'm not against it. Uh, I don't particularly think they spook deer from great distances, but generally I try to have entrance and exit already mapped out in my head where I'm going into the stand, how I'm going to get back out of there well enough to go in there with a very dim headlight at best, you know, something that's just projecting right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know y'all spent a ton of time tracking deer. Uh, um, I've been doing it since I was a kid. I, I like tracking deer as much as anything and seeing why they do what they do after they're shot, all that good stuff. Um, you know, and when you're doing that through the years, you see what lights when you're tracking buddies out the woods seem to really show up and which ones don't. And, you know, they make these cool handlet headlamps these days that basically you can see your feet just fine. And 10 feet away, the guy can't see it at all. So I think one of those is probably your best marrying of the two. You know, if you don't really like to alert game with a bright <laughs> flashlight, but you want to make sure you don't fall on your face, something like that's going to work great. I don't think you have to go in there with a, a 5,000 lumen spotlight to get to your stand, you know. Yeah, I would agree with you. Like in during the rut, especially when we are hunting those timber spots and you're trying to make a very quiet and, you know, covered entrance in, in the dark. Uh, if we are in a spot where it's like, oh man, I just need to see, all right, is am I still on the right path? You know, cause yeah. we'll try to go in obviously in the summer and clear those paths out so that it is a little bit easier. And you kind of can tell without a light that you're on the right spot. Sure. But if, if, you know, you do need it, usually I'll have something in my hand, a very small, like you, you're saying a, a clip, you know, clip light for the your visor. hat. Yeah. I'll, I'll put it on in my hand and I'll literally just every once in a while, flip just slightly turn the red on or whatever yeah. just to make sure i'm still on the right path and, and continue to go but i try not to use it as much as as little as possible and as far as getting out of out in the dark i never ever ever use it i mean it would be it'd have to be i don't know pitch black you know and yeah. dark of the moon or something and some reason i just needed usually i i would never i'm trying to the problem usually in getting out is you're spooking deer that are on the fields or whatever. So I'm trying to be as less of a footprint as you possibly can have. Right. So right. me personally, but you might have a different perspective. You hunt a lot in the timber and you have to climb in and climb out and put in your, put up your stand a lot of times. What's your thoughts here? Yeah. Uh, it kind of the same with you guys as, as little light to no light as possible. And I've hunted these places I hunt for so many years now. I know my way in and out and I, your eyes really do adjust to the darkness if you let them. Any kind of 
of artificial yeah. light, short of red or green, your eyes will kind of revert back to seeking unnatural light and it just makes it hard to see in the dark. So yeah, I, I will use a red light. Uh, if I need to do something, you know, untie something yeah. with my hands after dark or something, but on the whole, I try to avoid using lights. Even that, like when you're in your tree stand, you know, you climb up in the morning, you're in your tree stand. Like I try to have my gear in my pack so that I know, all right, when I zip this up, this should be here. Order right? of importance. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so try to think through all that stuff very, very minimally do I have to use a light in the stand. Even you should be able to feel out. And like you said, with any bit of, of light, natural light should be able to kind of see silhouette of what you're doing. And so I personally, that's just, I'm all of this. I'm sure it's personal preference, but try to not use it at all if if, if I don't have to. And, and by preparing ahead of time, getting your path cleared out on the way in. Right. You, you know, we, this year we, we got a new path into one of our favorite timber sets and it, it, it is so new that, you know, Scott, he trimmed, he trimmed it out, but he went and put thumbtacks out, you know, yeah. reflectors mm-hmm. out just in case. Cause also Wayno hunts there. And I want to make sure that we are crystal clear on where you got to go to get to the stand. But mm-hmm. um, typically speaking, we try to do it without and, and be prepared, have your stuff in your pack ready and the places, you know, where yeah. it's at. You know your your trails are trimmed, all those types of things. If you're prepared, you're you're less likely to have to need it. Sure. Now that said, I have walked up on deer with red lights, and it just doesn't seem to like. I don't think they can even see it. I've walked up incredibly close to them early in the, in the morning, and so like so, my experience tells me that the red light really doesn't bother them if they can yeah. even see it at all. Yeah, I have to wonder. I, I'm sure there's a study out there somewhere about what it is they Mm -hmm. their rods and cones can pick up on but it sure seems like red i don't know why red seems to be the thing that i always lean on the most as well it doesn't feel as intrusive to me it doesn't screw up your own night vision either. yeah so well parker thanks man good question if you want to leave a question just go to uh the show notes and there's a link in there click the send voicemail tab and leave your question and we will answer it on the air thanks parker yeah Round of applause for Parker. People are applauding. Yeah. For you. <laughs> They're going wild. Nice job. <laughs> okay. How about the wildlife word, boys? That's the intro to the wildlife word. <laughs> no, it's not. It is right now. Take that back. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Austin, just to take you through it, the wildlife word is a multiple choice. And um, if you win, you get a Mossy Oak Biologic ball cap. <laughs> oh, you got one. Nice. <laughs> oh, crud. Oh, man. <laughs> I need to plan else. these out so much better. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't do good at it. All right, let's hear it. The wildlife word is the pineal gland. Or is it penal? No. It's well, not. Okay. <laughs> the pineal gland. Is it a a cranial gland allowing deer to dream and make plans for the future? A gland that secretes acid, allowing whitetails to digest pine needles. A gland located on a deer's tail with a citrusy pineapple aroma. I got diarrhea. You do. (laughs) Or D, a gland that tells a pituitary gland to release testosterone to grow antlers. We always go with lead with the guest. Go ahead, Austin. What do you got? Against my better judgment and a much funnier answer, I guess I'll go with D. Uh, but okay. the but pineapple you- citrus on the rear end sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's only one way to find out. Yeah, I'm going with D as well. D is correct. So don't go sniffing a deer's butt when you kill one this, this season to see if 
<laughs> it smells like pineapple. It's not going to smell like pineapple. It's not going to smell like pineapple. And now you've been subjected to the wildlife word of the day. And Brought to you by Dole. Funny thing, we've gotten feedback on this and people don't like it. It's weird. <laughs> I think the problem is with those people. Ah, well, as in, that's society today. If they got a problem, it is with society. It, they are the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Austin, thanks so much for hopping on, man. We really appreciate it. Hey, yeah, don't uh, don't be scared to have me on again. If I didn't mess up too bad, I'd be glad to hop on here anytime. No, and I'll FaceTime you tomorrow when we're planting and I have 50 billion questions. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to regret that. Hey, I have I have answered a lot of questions from the cab attractor. So, you know, I don't mind it. I bet. Well, we appreciate you guys down in Biologic. You've helped us for a long time. Like I was saying earlier, I mean, 15, 16 years, whatever it is. I mean, it's, yeah. it's I think, you know, I think biologic personally, and I don't know the timeline of, of what seeds have done what, but biologic has helped create an entire industry there in the food plot world, realistically, and, and what you guys, you know, set out to educate yep. and this kind of scientifically proven side of it. And it's not just, hey, we're throwing something out there. It's all the test plots and all the things you guys do ahead of time in the research to put the best product out there. I mean, it, it does make a difference. So we appreciate you guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, we appreciate you guys watching. Thanks for tuning in this week. Stay tuned next week when we'll have episode number 172. Maybe. Maybe not. I think we do. <laughs> Hope we don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Till next time. Peace out. See ya. Every hunt starts with a game plan, like knowing when and what to plant. So get DeerCast and get ahead of your game. 